0: Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Matthew eight twenty three through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose. And rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea
1: obey him? Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. What a beautiful day, right? Beautiful. Perfect. Tell you what, Northeast Ohio, we don't do this often, but when we do it, we do it right. This is a beautiful, beautiful day. I'm so glad you're here at Christ Community Chapel, whether you're gathered with us outside or you're watching online. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you're here with us. Now, I'm excited to continue our sermon series looking at the life of Moses. But before I do that, I did want to let you know about something really important uh, that's going on for us as a church. We're going to be running something we're calling the Family Church Family Check-In survey. And what we're doing is the last two or three years have been crazy with COVID and everything else going on. And we're just wanting to make sure that we have an accurate account of are being here and of your information. Make sure we have the right contact information for you. If you've had a kid in the last couple of years, make sure we've got a record of that. All of our ministries exist to serve you. And that's easier to do if we have correct information. So if you would follow the information on the screen up above me or go online and find the survey, I believe it's just cccchapel.com family. Uh, you can go there and fill out your information and make sure that you know, you're letting us know, hey, I'm here, and here's how you can get a hold of me for the ministries that serve me or uh, my family. Thanks in advance for doing that. We're hoping to get everyone to do that before July 8th. So thanks for helping us in that way. We've been spending this summer looking at the life of Moses. And not just the life of Moses, although he is a very important figure in the history of what God has done in the world and in the story of the Bible. But we're connecting the life of Moses to the story of Jesus. That's because the Bible is one big story. One big story of what God is doing in human history to rescue people and to enter into relationship with them forever through Jesus. So even in the scripture read, you can see we're looking at a snippet of Moses's story and then connecting it to the life and ministry of Jesus. I'm excited to continue to do that here with you this morning. In fact, if you have a Bible or a device on which you can access the Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and open it up to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first few verses there, Exodus chapter 7. And as you are finding your way to Exodus 7, let me hold out to the outline I'm going to use to guide our time together. Three points and they go like this. I want to talk about innocence and guilt. I want to talk about mercy and judgment. And then third, seeing and believing. Okay, Innocence and guilt, mercy and judgment, seeing and believing. Alright, let's start first with innocence and guilt. This is an introductory passage. I need to give you the context that will help you make sense of it. What's getting ready to happen is that God in his effort to rescue Israel from their slavery to Egypt is going to introduce a series of plagues. He's going to use the plagues to slowly and surely break the power of Egypt over Israel And bring about Israel's release. And the plagues are going to be crazy. That's really what we're talking about here this morning. But to read all of that would take a long, long time. So what we have instead is the passage where God is telling Moses, Here is what's coming. I'm going to display my power. I'm going to use these plagues to break Egypt and to break Pharaoh. And when the plagues come, they are going to affect every single Egyptian. And slowly and surely, God will use them to free Israel. But in reading this story, I think it's really important that we wrestle with two particular questions. Two questions that, if we're honest, and when we're reading this, are going to pop up among us. The first question is, is it right for God to punish all of Egypt? Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. It's Pharaoh who decides if the slaves keep working, if they live, if they die, or if they are set free. But God is going to introduce 10 plagues, which will affect every single person living in Egypt. Is that right? And then the second question is, you might have noticed in the passage, that God tells Moses that while he is doing these plagues, he is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh, meaning God is going to do something internally in Pharaoh that will cause Pharaoh to say no to God, to keep the slaves, to not set them free. Is that fair? By asking these two questions, we're going to learn a lot about God and about how he thinks about innocence and guilt. But before we ask them, let me just say to you, I don't know your background. I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible or with Christianity, but I want you to see that the Bible invites these kinds of questions. It is okay to ask God questions. It's okay to wrestle with what you read, to wonder about fairness, to wonder about rightness. God is not in the habit of seeking robotic approval. God desires to be understood. And to be loved for who he is and what he's actually done. Part of that is asking questions. So is it fair for God to punish all of Egypt when only Pharaoh gets to decide? The answer to that depends on how you think about innocence and guilt. It is interesting that when God speaks of the slavery of Israel, he does not place the blame with Pharaoh. Instead, he places the blame with all of Egypt. In chapter 3, when Moses is called by God from the burning bush, God says in verse 9 that he has seen the oppression of Israel and how they've been oppressed by the Egyptians. He includes the whole country. He doesn't say, I've seen how Israel is be- has been oppressed by Pharaoh. I see how He, is a king, has harmed them. No, he places the blame with all of Egypt. God blames everyone in Egypt for the slavery of Israel. What's also interesting is that when Israel is finally set free after the tenth and most difficult plague, the Egyptians, as Israel is leaving, gives the Israelites their silver and their gold and even their clothing. So, as Israel is being set free, Egypt is saying, Please, as you go, take our valuables. Now, that's interesting. God told Israel that would happen. But from the Egyptians' perspective, what that is is an acknowledgement that the silver and gold and clothing they have was won off of the backs of the Israelite slaves. That the entire Egyptian economy was propped up by the subjugation and the slavery of the Israelites. They have what they have because they have oppressed the Israelites. They are guilty because they have profited from the slavery of Israel. They have turned a blind eye to the injustice of the Israelites because it benefited them. And when Israel is finally released, they acknowledge that through the giving back of the things they have won. You see, it's interesting that when we think about innocence and guilt, we tend to think of guilt as the big things that people do. And it is easy for us to stand off at a distance and say, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm also not Pharaoh. I haven't done the big nasty things. I... I'm not responsible for the greatest evils of our community or of my family or of the world. I'm just a regular person. But when God looks at us, he sees all of the nuanced ways that we benefit from, that we participate in, that we add to the brokenness of our world. God does not just hold Pharaohs responsible for their guilt. He holds regular people like you and like me guilty before God because we have participated in the brokenness of our world. And therefore, when we think about God, our starting point should be we are guilty before him. That is what this passage is about. The second question I want to ask is when God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart, is it fair then that God holds Pharaoh responsible for saying no? Well, the important thing to understand what God means in Exodus 7 is to keep reading. And here's what you'll find. After every plague is done, Pharaoh's heart eventually is hardened. There's a rhythm to the passage. God will do some miraculously awful plague. Pharaoh will beg Moses to ask God to stop the plague. He will even sometimes say, just ask God to stop and I will let Israel go. But every time when God takes the plague away, the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. What's interesting is that the first five times this rhythm happens, the Bible makes sure that we know that it is Pharaoh who hardens his own heart. It is not until chapter 9, verse 12, or the sixth plague, that we are told God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So the Bible is letting us in on something. It is not that Pharaoh was willing to repent, willing to acknowledge his sin, and God swooped in and placed his hand over Pharaoh's mouth and stopped Pharaoh from confessing. It is rather that eventually... God abandoned Pharaoh to his sin. God's judgment on Pharaoh was to simply allow Pharaoh to be Pharaoh, to remove his grace, to remove his instinct to intervene, to to take away any opportunity for God to change Pharaoh. You see, the Bible is telling us that not only are we all guilty before God, But also that the scariest thing would be that eventually God would abandon us to our guilt. That he would leave us to continue in the way in which we've been living without intervening. You see, that's where we all are before God. Guilty and in desperate need for God to act. I don't know if you've thought about this, but as you and I exist in our rebellion before God, the absolute worst thing that God could do is leave us to it. The absolute worst thing that God could do is to simply let us continue in the path we're heading. And that's what he does to Pharaoh. But I don't want you to think that I've gathered you here on this beautiful day to give you bad news. So let's move quickly to the second point, which is mercy and judgment. I told you that God is going to send 10 plagues. The 10th plague is a doozy. It's what changes everything. And actually, I'm going to leave that for next week. But the first nine plagues are interesting to me. They're interesting, first of all, because they're kind of random and chaotic. It goes like this, God turns the river into blood. Then he sends frogs, which is weird and gross. Then he sends gnats. After the gnats he sends flies, which I have to be honest, I don't really know the difference. Bugs everywhere, gnats, flies, the cattle get sick. Then everyone gets boils on their skin. Then there's hail, locusts, and complete and utter darkness. Nine plagues, nine times that God acts. But here's my question, if God knew that the 10th plague was going to lead to Israel's freedom, why doesn't he just use that from the beginning? If God knew that the 10th thing he was going to do was going to set them free, why does he bother with blood and frogs and gnats and flies, with cattle and boils and hail and locusts and darkness? Why does God bother with that? Well, he tells us here in the passage, if you look at Exodus 7, this is what he says in verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And then listen to this. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. You see, God isn't just seeking Israel's release. He's seeking Egypt's attention. This passage is letting us in on something that to God, there are two kinds of judgment. Let's call them little J judgment and big capital J judgment. Big capital J judgment is the kind of judgment that you and I think about. It's when we die and we stand before God and we give an account for our lives and God lets us know whether he is for us or against us whether we have passed his judgment or face his judgment. But you see, there's a second kind of judgment. It's a little j kind of judgment. It's when God introduces pain and difficulty into our lives in order to get our attention so that the big j judgment does not have to come. God tells Moses, I'm bringing nine plagues before the tenth plague because my desire is for Egypt to know who I am, for them to respond to who I am. The Bible tells us over and over again that God's desire is to gather people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, including Egypt, that God is for people, not against them, that the day of judgment is coming, but that God's desire is that none of us should fail in the face of his judgment, so he introduces pain and difficulty, little j judgment, in order that we might awaken to who he is, in order that we might seek his mercy and his grace. Blood, frogs, gnats, all of it, seeking to get our attention. Now, My guess is that your house has not had an invasion of frogs, it is summer, so maybe an invasion of flies. My guess is you have not faced this kind of exotic judgment. But are you open to the idea that some of the things you are facing right now are feel like judgment, but are actually God's mercy to you? The God's desire is to get your attention. God's desire is for you to begin to ask Who he is, and what he wants, and how he feels, and how you can be right with him. That God is not wanting you to face the ultimate judgment, the tenth plague, the final decision, without knowing that he is for you. Maybe some of you are gathered here today precisely because of the difficulty of your life, looking for answers. I know that we often want blessing from God. We want God to get our attention through good things. But you and I know that when times are good, we are not often asking questions. When everything's great, we are not often wrestling with who God is and what he wants for us. It's in periods of pain, of difficulty, of conflict, that he has our attention. Do not miss the nine opportunities before the tenth one comes. God's desire is for you, is the same for Egypt, that you might see, that you might know, that you might awaken, that you might ask for mercy before it's too late. That is God's heart. Mercy in judgment. Mercy before judgment. And then here's the third point I want to put in front of you. And that's the relationship between seeing and believing. You see, God says that his desire is that in, this, in these miraculous, creative acts of judgment, that both Israel and Egypt would know that he is God. That they would see him for who he is. That they would come to know him. You see, what this passage is really telling us is that to God, there is no distinction between Israel and Egypt in this way. There are only two kinds of people to God. The dividing line of people is not Israel or Egypt, Americans or not, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, rich, poor, married, single, God's distinction is not any of those things. In this story, people are being divided into two categories. Those who see what God is doing and believe him. And those who see what God is doing and ignore him. That story is going to be woven throughout the Bible. Who will respond to the mighty acts of God? Who will see and believe? That's the question. As Israel escapes Egypt and is led to freedom, this question will be placed in front of them time and time again. God will be subdividing, even Israel, subdividing them into those who see and believe and those who see and ignore. It is no different for us. That's why we've connected Exodus 7 to the story we heard read about Jesus. Because Jesus is the son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's the God who made the universe. He's the God who sends blood and frogs, gnats and flies, cattle being sick, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, he's that God in the flesh. That's why when he's on a boat and a storm comes and everyone's afraid they're going to die, Jesus is the one who can say, Peace, be still. Because creation responds to the Creator. But I want you to see in that story that it's a reversal of the plagues. This is so important. In Exodus 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, God acts over creation to bring judgment. But in Jesus, God is acting over creation to bring mercy. Jesus is the one who does not bring the storm. He's the one who stops the storm. Jesus is not the one who came to bring judgment. He's the one who came to rescue from judgment. If you read the life and ministry of Jesus, what you'll see is that Jesus acts in creation time and time again to put the world back together. He makes the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. He brings life to those who were dead, forgiveness to those who were ostracized. Jesus is the God of creation not coming against us, but for us. That's why the ultimate act Jesus will do over creation is he will live sinlessly in our place, die sacrificially in our place, and raise from the dead three days later, triumphing over nature, over death, over sin, telling us that the same God who brought judgment in Exodus 7 is the God who's bringing rescue from judgment in the New Testament. You see, big J judgment awaits all of us. But just as God came to Egypt nine times because his desire was for mercy, so also God has come to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are written so that you might see and believe. That you might hear what God has done, the miraculous things he's done through Jesus. And you might believe before you face his judgment. That I might be rescued before I stand in judgment. But I wouldn't want you to think that God's redemptive acts are limited to what you read in the Gospels. They're there for you. And certainly God has never done anything greater than what he's done in Jesus Christ. But just as God acted in Egypt's midst, so also God has acted in yours. Let me show you what I mean. I hope because we're outside, we can do what we don't normally do and do a little audience participation. But how many of you would say that over the course of your life, God has acted in a powerful and redemptive way that has changed you and changed your story. Would you raise your hand if that's true? Keep it up, please. Listen, if you don't know God, look around you. Just as God acted in Egypt to get their attention, he's acted in your midst. Keep it up, just a little longer, I promise. Now, if you'd be willing to tell someone about what God has done in your life, would you keep your hand up? If you're unwilling, would you put it down? Friends, listen. Do not miss an opportunity to see and believe the mighty acts of God in your midst. You may put your hand down. God's judgment is coming for us all. It was coming for Egypt. But nine times God said, Egypt, I want you to know who I am. It's not too late for you. And it's not too late for you either. This yard is filled with people who would love to tell you their story. God desires mercy for you, not judgment. If you doubt that, look to Jesus. If you need proof of that, look to Jesus. If you need more, ask your neighbor. Let me pray for us. Father God. What a great God you are that you needed only to jump to the 10th plague to break Egypt. But you didn't do that because your desire is for us, to forgive us, to rescue us, to awaken us. Mercy, not judgment. Egypt missed it. Please do not let us do that. Those who have gathered here this morning, unsure of why they came, would they awaken to the fact that the difficulties in their life may simply be your loving desire to get their attention? And may they today, in Jesus, through the testimony of their neighbor, come to know who you are and how you love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.